This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 23rd of April 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Charles Hecker will be with me to chew through the front pages, and there's a lot to get our teeth into. Plus our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck's weekend column. At the gate before boarding the flight to Zurich, an announcement is made that everyone must wear a mask. But who greets you on the plane? A fully maskless crew. On the return journey, there's no mask announcement. Not a single passenger sporting one, but the crew is now wearing them. Confusion reigns, and Andrew Muller tells us what we learned this week. We learned this week of another puncture in F. Scott Fitzgerald's maxim that there are no second acts in American lives. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. First, though, here's the news. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky warned that Russia's invasion of his country was just the beginning and that Moscow has designs on capturing other countries after a Russian general said it wants full control over southern Ukraine. A blast tore through a sunny mask during Friday prayers in the northern Afghan city of Kunduz, killing 33 people and wounding dozens more, officials said. It was not clear who was behind the explosion. And French President Emmanuel Macron and far-right challenger Marine Le Pen made final appeals on Friday to undecided voters, weighing fears of what a Le Pen presidency could bring against their anger at Macron's record. According to the latest surveys for Sunday's runoff, Macron leads by 10 to 14 points, well outside margins of error. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now it's time to have a browse through this morning's newspapers and I'm pleased to say that joining me is Charles Hecker, who's Senior Partner at Control Risks. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. Charles, lies, 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 lies. Could I be talking about Vladimir Putin? Could I be talking about Boris Johnson? Could I be talking about Marine Le Pen? Could I be talking about Donald Trump? It applies to all of them. But in fact, I'm actually talking about the Californian Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy. That's right. It's sort of D, all of the above. But <laughs> we're, we're going to be more specific today. And we're going to look at a, pay, a piece in The New York Times with a headline that says, McCarthy's lie puts GOP hypocrisy on Trump on display. This is an important story for a number of reasons. And the first one, because our review of the papers is about the news, but it's also about the papers, we have to note that the New York Times is using the word lie quite prominently in a headline on a political story. Um, this is the New York Times getting a bit punchy because the New York Times is often accused of being a bit wishy-washy when it comes to taking a line politically, um, in its news coverage at least, and it's also accused of being a bit both sides-ish in the way it reports the news. And so the first thing that we notice is that the New York Times is being um, quite peaked in the way it's discussing this. This is an interesting and complicated story um, that, that hit the news 
um, just yesterday and emerges from a book that's being written by two New York Times reporters about the Trump presidency. Basically, what the book says is, and, and what Kevin McCarthy, who's a representative from California, he says two things. He says, I have never suggested that the president should resign, and I have never suggested that the president bore any responsibility for what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. There is now a tape. And by the way, people always say tape. It's never really tape. It's always a digital <laughs> recording, but we say tape. There is a taped conversation of Kevin McCarthy saying exactly those two things, that he thinks that the president should resign, Trump, and that he thinks that, that Trump bore responsibility for what happened in the Capitol on January 6th. What makes this even more interesting is that the telephone conversation that was taped is with Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, of course, is a representative from Wyoming, daughter of the vice president, and who has been essentially, essentially excommunicated from the Republican Party because she says what she thinks about all of this. Um, and she calls it like it is on Trump and the Republicans want nothing to do with him, with her. Now here's McCarthy in the exact same position. Absolutely. It's such an intriguing story. And it goes off in so many different directions because uh, there's been a, a huge outcry that uh, this book by these two New York Times journalists actually kept back information, didn't publish it in the paper at the time when it might have made difference, a, a political difference, and kept this back so that they would have a scoop for their book. So... As you're well aware, there have been a series of revelatory books about the Trump presidency. Some were published after he left office. Some were published while he was still in office. And, and the authors of all of those books have basically come in for criticism on three fronts. Number one is, is just what you said, and that is that they all knew things that might have actually steered the course of political and public events had they been public. Um, but they were kind of kept so to make the books even even more juicy and, and even more of a bombshell. Um, the other thing is that this book contains evidence that might have been useful to the January 6th um, investigation that is currently ongoing um, by a Democrat-led congressional committee. Um, and then the third thing always, although these are journalists who are writing this, is sort of like – you know, you were sort of bought into all of this during the presidency, especially for the books that were written by members of the administration. So what were you doing there in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, and so all of these books come in for criticism on different fronts. So what does this mean for McCarthy? So McCarthy and the rest of the Republicans, frankly, are shrugging this off. Um, and McCarthy says, I never said what these tapes say that I said, as if this didn't happen. And he's creating this sort of alternate reality. But, but here's what, what, the, what the Times is saying and what this piece is saying, basically, is that the collective Republican Party, both nationally and in Washington, D.C., is sort of saying, we don't care. Mm -hmm. uh, just before we leave this story, or at least leave the New York Times, uh, tell us about the uh, new, <laughs> the new uh, editor. This is uh, Joe Kahn. Right. So there is a change in leadership, a planned uh, transition in leadership uh, at the New York Times, and that is that Dean Baquet, who's been um, the editor-in-chief for about eight years, is stepping down, and he's being replaced by Joe Kahn. Um, Joe Kahn is a long-serving insider at the New York Times, and he was profiled in his new role by New York Magazine. And he took this absolutely outrageous picture for the profile where he's sitting on the floor with the Times sort of spread out in front of him in the most unusual pose you could ever <laughs> strike in a high-profile magazine, in a high-profile piece where he, he's kind of like leaning back and has his legs in a strange position. And he's been absolutely barbecued for it on Twitter. It's, it's kind of hilarious. It's a very seductive pose, isn't it? 
it, it's it it looks like he's trying so hard to be seductive, but he's too much of a newspaper nerd to pull it off. <laughs> um, there is also a, a kind of a, a, a piece of, about his appointment and why why that's important because he was the former China correspondent, uh, and that seems to be the reason behind his appointment. Because I mean, they could have gone for perhaps their first black woman, their first Hispanic person uh, woman. Uh, they could have gone for diversity on a number of fronts and chose not to do that, have taken a man very much in the mould of, of the last one, but China seems to be the reason. So any time a prominent publication like this, who is both a leader and a believer and an example of you know the trend towards greater diversity and equity and inclusion in business and, and in public life, any time a newspaper chooses a leader like this, it is bound to be an incredibly visible, emblematic, and controversial appointment. Um, you know, the New York Times has maybe gone with a safe candidate by picking a long-term insider, um, or perhaps, as you suggest, they need a steady hand on an incredibly controversial topic going forward, um, and they've gone with somebody who knows China really well. Mm. Right. Well, let's uh, now join our uh, editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, for his weekly column. In the airline lounge at Heathrow, the gentleman next to me returns to his seat, having collected a large dining plate piled high with a pyramid of biscuits. He sits down, unlocks his expensive leather carry-on, takes out a plastic Ziploc bag and fills it to capacity with a landslide of cookies. He then checks that the coast is clear before hiding his hoard amongst his smalls. Then he heads off again, this time in search of cake. He's a human squirrel. I'm sure lots of people grab something for the onward journey, but it's the meticulous pre-planning that's so impressive. Plus, he doesn't even strike you as an obvious cookie muncher, so nobody is going to suspect him. Next time, I'm going to bring a chiller box and see how many bottles of champagne can be removed. I need some of this life's a buffet, get stuck in confidence. At the gate before boarding the flight to Zurich, an announcement is made that everyone must wear a mask. But who greets you on the plane? A fully maskless crew. On the return journey, there's no mask announcement, not a single passenger sporting one, but the crew is now wearing them. Although, having flown a few times in the past week, I am sympathetic on one front. Newspapers are filled with stories of airlines cancelling flights because of a shortage of staff. Crew who were laid off during the pandemic have discovered that life is better when you're not getting up at 4am to deal with a flight full of demanding passengers and suspected cookie thieves, and so cannot be lured back. But my flights have been delayed this week because there was no one available to clean the plane, a shortage of baggage handlers, not enough staff at work in air traffic control in Europe, difficulties loading the food. Seems all the cookies had gone missing. While our wants and needs, therefore, may be reverting to form, in every sector, in every country, there's just a shortage of people in place to make this return happen smoothly. And especially in industries where salaries are low and customers unwilling to pay more. This debate about how to get people back in position seems to have become detached from need or common sense and descended into just another political tribal debate lately especially in the UK. This week, 
Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Minister for Government Efficiency, published a league table showing how many staff had returned to work in key government departments as part of a bid to encourage more civil servants to pitch up at the office. He said that this was because he believed in the benefits of face-to-face -face working, collaborative working too. Now, Rees-Mogg is not a man who many would describe as likeable, let alone empathetic. But the media response has been so annoyingly predictable. The Guardian sees this as an assault on people's right to work from home. One imagines the shrill response also reflects how many of the paper's staff are home workers and ignores the fact that disconnected homeworking was one of the reasons civil servants failed to respond to the fall of Kabul and the need to rescue Afghans. Many believe that this actually cost lives. Meanwhile, any newspaper on the right seems to believe that all homeworkers are just snoozing on the sofa and bouncing up and down on their pelotons. Nuance vanishes in all of the reporting. Personally, I'd like to know that the teams dealing with Ukraine, child welfare, prison reforms, for example, are all in the room coming together, but it feels like it's too late for a genuine debate about the future of work for the political classes on both sides of the divide. I hope that next week we still have President Macron. But just as on the cusp of other votes that shook the system, Trump and Bolsonaro's presidential wins, Brexit, there's a strange mood at play in France. You speak to people who you presume to be moderates, people who would panic at the thought of what's at stake, and what you hear back is much more nuanced. This week, one French contact said that while he wanted Macron to win, he recognised that many people now thought, what have I got to lose? It's a sentiment that can wreak last-minute havoc and shows that from cookie desires to voting intentions, you should never take anything for granted. Many thanks there to Andrew Tuck. And, of course, he uh, mentioned the uh, toxic political divide here in Britain. Uh, and that's where we go next with more lies and Partygate. Uh, but there have been significant developments in this story. That's right, Georgina. Uh, the Times, among many papers in the UK today, tells us that it's probably time to start thinking about Partygate again. And this, of course, refers to the series of, do we call them, events? that were held in Downing Street where there was alcohol and merriment, but they're not parties. Um, these are the events that were held during lockdown that the prime minister attended and is now under investigation for. Um, the Times has this headline, Partygate fines, met issues fines for bring your own booze party at Downing Street. And this is important for a few reasons. First of all, we all thought that Partygate would essentially go away because of the Ukraine conflict. The Ukraine conflict remains. Partygate is back in spite of it. Um, number two, um, the prime minister's first fixed penalty notice, which is something less than a criminal indictment, but more than a speeding ticket, was issued for a so-called birthday party where he said, well, look, there were only just a few people in my office and there was a cake, but it never even came out of the Tupperware container. The bring your own booze party was a proper full on knees up at Downing Street where people were invited to bring alcohol and there were dozens of people allegedly in attendance. Those people are starting to get fixed penalty notices today, the Times tells us. The prime minister has not yet been singled out yet, and we won't learn the fullness of all of this until after the local elections that are upcoming. Um, but there's a real change in the tone of the discussion 
of Partygate. Um, you had Tobias Elwood yesterday publicly saying he thought a no-confidence vote was when rather than if. And, and you just get this feeling that the noose is tightening um, around Boris Johnson's neck. Uh, and, of course, there's, it's been referred now, he's been referred now to the Commons Privileges Committee. That's right. That was a massive event and a huge loss and U-turn for the prime minister, who, by the way, is trying to, to close a trade deal with mixed success in India at the moment. That very trip itself seen as a diversionary tactic from what was happening. Um, but the prime minister has been referred to an internal parliamentary committee for additional investigation. There are two ways of looking at this, and that is that parliamentary investigations are sometimes the very best way to bury an issue. Um, you know, we're only, we still don't know who killed Kennedy. So we're, 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 you know, we may never know what happened with Partygate now that it's the subject of a parliamentary investigation. Um, but what it means is that that the issue stays alive and potentially for a very long time. Now, Johnson was asked about Partygate uh, in his final press conference in India. He said, we had a pretty good kick of that cat yesterday before adding, not that I'm in favour of kicking cats. <laughs> You know, making sure he covers himself as as an animal lover and, and, and doesn't give anybody else any other excuses to take him down. Um, the problem is that whether it's a cat or, or anything else, the prime minister is going to get kicked now over and over and over again the minute his plane touches down from Delhi. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, talking of, of planes and indeed of India, um, we're told that uh, Japan has had to rework a plan uh, to send um, uh, um, aid to Ukraine because India refused to allow their plane to land. Um, it was uh, transporting humanitarian aid supplies to displace Ukrainians uh, and uh, the plan was for this plane to pick up relief items at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in India and in the UAE and drop them off in Poland and Romania and uh, India refused uh, landing rights. So this is yet another reason why the Prime Minister's trip to India has come in for a lot of public criticism. First of all, um, he's trying to conclude a trade deal that he may not get ink on paper yet. Um, and by the way, everything was fine with trade in India before Brexit. Um, and the second thing is that the public is asking why the prime minister is in India at all. And if he is there, shouldn't he be helping convince India to take a stronger stand on Ukraine? And India is having nothing of it. India is carving out its own independent approach on foreign policy. And that is um, in part a reflection of the importance of its commercial and its military and its energy relationship with Russia. And India is going to do what India wants to do, as it always has with Russia and with the Soviet Union prior to that. And the prime minister is not going to be able to do anything to change that. Yeah. I mean, I suppose India is in a difficult position, given that it borders Pakistan and China and it's got all this. I mean, that, that it's with Pakistan and China, rather, and under a lot of influence, they're both nuclear armed. India is one of these places that geopolitically you couldn't make it up even if you tried. Um, and, and that is it is between the United States and China. It is between Russia and the West. It is between Pakistan and its and its own issues. Um, and it has its own problems with China. It is just it, it is one of an emerging set of geopolitical fulcrums around the world that is abs that is fragile but absolutely critical to keeping everything sort of spinning along quietly. Oh, absolutely. Now let's find out from Andrew Muller what else we learned this week. We learned this week of another puncture in F. Scott Fitzgerald's maxim that there are no second acts in American lives. 
seriously, I kick off with a highfalutin literary citation and this, this prosaic slapstick, is what I get. It's been a long week. Fair enough. We also learned, looking into it further, like the diligent researchers and or friendless pedants that we are, that like pretty much every quote on the internet, that one is wrong. What Fitzgerald actually first wrote in a 1932 essay called My Lost City was, I once thought that there were no second acts in American lives, i.e. a sentiment more or less the polar opposite of the popular attribution, happy to help we do appear to have deviated somewhat from the point. Come on. <laughs> Just get on with it. Where were we? Right. We learned that Fitzgerald's misquote was wrong, but the actual quote might be right, in that we learned that actually America is frankly generous to a profligate fault in its dispensing of second acts. For we learned that the headline attraction at the Market Hotel in Brooklyn on July 8th will be a singer-songwriter by the name of John Hinckley Jr., which might sound familiar. He was wounded. God! He was... The president was hit. He is in stable condition. All this information, the, the president was hit. Yes, the very same. And we have learned, somewhat depressingly, that there appear to be sufficient morbid weirdos at large to have sold out the market hotel in advance. Unless, of course, this is an undue slight upon pure-hearted fans of popular song sincerely enticed by this singularly drab species of strum and drone. Everybody's fighting here and there. Wanna see some love. So we learned that, incredibly, attempting to assassinate the President of the United States might only be the second worst thing Hinckley has ever done. Come on, it was right there. Where's the gong? In the world, I wanna see some love. Staying in the United States, frankly, for no better reason than the fact that the enthusiasm its citizens display for electing obvious nitwits and certifiable kooks to public office makes the compilation of whimsical news monologues such as this a pretty breezy morning's work. Thanks, America, we learned that one Republican state senator in Tennessee is perhaps yet to crack the second volume of Sir Ian Kershaw's magisterial biography of, well, Take it away, Senator. For two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced his oratory and his body language and how to connect with the masses, and then went on to lead a life that got him in the history books. So a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this, these homeless camps and have a productive life. Tennessee State Senator and living contradiction to the theory of nominative determinism, Frank Nicely, from whom we learned that homeless people should be more like... Adolf Hitler? There having been literally nobody else in human history to have climbed from relative poverty to national leadership who could possibly have been cited as some sort of encouraging example. And that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And yes, we chose Abraham Lincoln's words read by Barack Obama specifically to annoy Senator Nicely. And indeed, if we may make so bold, annoy the Senator Nicely. Oh. Tough crowd.
Elsewhere, specifically Taiwan, we learned that someone had endured a worse day at work than you had. Unless, of course, the central protagonist of this story is among Monocle 24's many listeners in Taiwan. And certainly it seems likely that what with one thing and another, they suddenly have more time to catch up with their podcasts. We learned that on Wednesday, viewers of the morning news on CTS witnessed the screen suddenly light up with somewhat disconcerting news tickers, as now read by Monocle 24 staff. These included... On the brink of war. Taipei hit by People's Liberation Army ground force missiles. Vessel explodes in Taipei Harbor. Facilities and ships destroyed. We learned via the channel's swift and abject apology that these were mock-ups created for emergency service disaster response drills broadcast by mistake and that those responsible would be, we quote, severely punished. But if we have learned one thing this week, it is, of course, that there is always a way back, however disheartening one's present circumstances may seem, and that the hapless technician responsible for this fabulous balls-up need only look to the example of a bedraggled and penniless Austrian watercolourist who... Well, fair enough. And we learned that it is perhaps imprudent to believe everything one reads on the internet. Indeed. But we learned that the government of the United Kingdom intends, by golly, to do something about this. New proposals will make illegal, on pain of fairly socking fines, the writing or hosting of fake reviews, and will compel companies to take reasonable steps to check that reviews posted on their websites are genuine. At which point, we must dash, as we definitely don't have another few hundred five-star reviews for these monologues to rattle up before this thing gets signed off on. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much to Andrew. Now, still with me in the studio is Charles Hecker. And Charles, we're off to Japan next, as uh, Jacinda Arden also uh, has been uh, travelling. That's right. We are flicking through the Japan Times today and we're looking at a story that says New Zealand deal may put Japan closer to Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. Um, New Zealand rock star prime minister Jacinda Ardern is on a state visit to Japan. She's pictured here on the Japan Times website, at least, um, shaking hands with um, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Um, and the Five Eyes Alliance that this article refers to is an intelligence sharing agreement that is between English-speaking countries, including the United States, Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. For 75 years, the Japan Times tells us, these countries have been more or less freely sharing intelligence. Japan has always wanted to join this group. The United States has been very, very careful, however, about sharing intelligence with Japan. There is an intelligence sharing agreement, but it's not quite as generous as the Five Eyes Agreement, and Japan wants an equal seat at the table. Georgina, what this story reflects, I think, is that intelligence and intelligence sharing is a kind of currency, and it's a new way for countries to sort of weigh and judge each other and publicly express how much they trust each other. Mm. Um, And Japan wants that trust. I think the United States is getting closer and closer to giving that trust um, and New Zealand and Japan are, are, of course, tied by many types of relationships, both economic and political. Those have to do with China. 
And that's part of the reason for wanting to get in on this intelligence sharing agreement. Mm. And I mean, one of the things they're both particularly upset about at the moment is the Solomon Islands uh, signing this deal with China. And of course, that's right in New Zealand's backyard. That's right. There is, and, and we use these expressions very carefully, um, do we want to say that there's an emerging sphere of influence evolving in the Pacific? Or is the Pacific a new sort of economic, political, military, and geopolitical battlegrounds? And are these countries now all fortifying their positions and in part here using intelligence to do that fortification? Uh, now, there is one thing that we have to mention before we go. <laughs> and that, that is um, how she was welcomed. Uh, yes. So um, when Prime Minister Ardern arrived in Japan, one of her welcome ceremonies, which was done in part by a New Zealand trade organization. By the way, New Zealand sells 600 million pounds, dollars, pounds, a lot of kiwi kiwi fruit to Japan. You know, that's an awful lot of, of fruit salad um, going between New Zealand and Japan. So when she arrived, she was greeted by a pair of dancing kiwis, and both Japan and New Zealand exploded with joy over this. <laughs> so it's they're, they're described as um, huge anthropomorphic kiwi fruit <laughs> swaying to music. <laughs> to be but specific. This becomes, and, and they are massive, and they're actually, there's a video of it, and they're actually outside on the veranda as inside <laughs> an orchestra place. And the thing is that if you listen to it with the sound off, it looks quite jolly, and they could be swaying along to something. Let's listen to what the music actually was. How would you dance to this unless you were, of course, a kiwi fruit? <laughs> it's too, too fabulous. Uh, and as you say, the, 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 both uh, New Zealand and uh, Japan just in stitches over this. The, the, this was, you know, the only and the most fitting way, perhaps, for a New Zealand prime minister to be welcomed in a place like Japan. It was it was perfect in so many ways. Charles Heckert, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hall. Uh, that's it for this edition of Monocle on Saturday, and of course we'll return at the same time next week. That's it. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.